just finished a book called A Man Called Uvi. The main character in the book is a man named Uvi. Uvi and his wife Sophie live in Sweden. One time they were on vacation in Spain. The tour bus they were riding was in an accident caused by a drunk driver, and it was just a tragic accident. It caused the loss of their unborn child. It caused the loss of Sophie's legs. And then four years later, Sophie died of cancer. Just a tragic time in Uvi's life. And the book opens with Uvi actually trying to end his own life because of all that, because he wants to go see Sophie up in heaven. Now, put aside for a moment any debate raging in your mind about whether he's actually chosen a, an appropriate way to get to heaven, and, and just think for a moment about his view of heaven, because for many of us, that is probably a popular view of heaven. For many of us, heaven matters because it's where our loved ones reside. Uvi valued heaven because that's where Sophie was. And for many of us, we think of heaven primarily as the place where our loved ones are. And if that's the case for you, then John, the author of Revelation, may want you to take another look at heaven because in Revelation 4, John's first view of heaven in Revelation and our first look into heaven in Revelation, what captures John's attention about Revelation is something very different than that. A little bit later in Revelation, he'll acknowledge that heaven is where our loved ones indeed are. But what captures his attention about heaven in Revelation 4 is something very different and ultimately probably something much more important. Here's what John writes. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So what did John see in heaven? A throne? Yes? How many say a throne? Come on. There you go. A throne. What John beheld in heaven was not beloved martyrs who had died in the book of Acts. What he saw in heaven was not Uvi's wife Sophie. What he saw in heaven was not our loved ones who've gone on before us. What he saw in heaven was a throne. Seventeen times in chapters 4 and 5, this throne is mentioned. Seventeen times. Twenty-one more times in chapters 6 through 22, this throne is mentioned. That's 38 times in the book of Revelation, this throne is mentioned. That makes it pretty important. In fact, I think that we can say that at least in Revelation, heaven matters because it reminds us of this throne. Heaven is mentioned in Revelation primarily not because it's where our loved ones exist, although they do, but heaven matters in Revelation because it reminds us of the throne of God. John wants us to think of heaven because he wants us to think of the throne of God. Why? 
Well, John wants us to think of the throne in heaven because he knows that we are dealing with all kinds of other thrones down here on earth. And these thrones on earth are competing for our faith in God. They're causing us to compromise with our faith and they're conflicting with our faith. John wants us to see this throne in heaven because he knows down here on earth we're dealing with all kinds of things, we can call them thrones, even if they're not literal thrones, that are conflicting with our faith in God and causing us to compromise with our faith in God. So he gives an example of this a little bit earlier in Revelation. When he's writing to some Christians who are living in a city called Pergamum, here's what John writes to that church. In chapter 2, verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone so that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of that. But Greg Stevenson, a New Testament scholar, writes about this city of Pergamum and the Christians living in it. He points out this throne of Satan, verse 13. We may not know exactly what that is, but it's clear the Christians in that city are facing some pressures symbolized by this throne. And those pressures are, for some of them, creating conflict with their Christian faith. For some of them, that conflict is so intense that it's led to the death of one of them named Antipas. Stevenson points out that for others, that conflict wouldn't be quite as intense. For, for example, if you were a silversmith living in Pergamon, you would be required to belong to a guild, kind of like a union. And as part of that guild, you would also be involved in some idol worship. And so you would face this incredible conflict as a Christian silversmith. Well, do I stay in my trade and do a little bit of idol worship to do that? Or do I give up my trade and stay true to God, but now no longer have an income? It's a huge conflict. Some of them have given into that conflict and have compromised their faith, and so John critiques them for eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. All of that is a reference to giving into idol worship. And in fact, Stevenson points out in Pergamum, Virtually every important institution had idol worship attached to it. So even if your child was sick, you couldn't just go visit the hospital. You had to go to the temple of Asclepius where you had to engage in a little bit of idol worship in order to get some healing for your sick child. That's why John points to this vision of heaven and the throne of God 
because he knows that his readers are struggling with all of these other thrones here on earth, including the throne of Rome, which Eric pointed to last Sunday. The same is true for us. We may not have temples and idol worship going on, but every morning when we wake up, there are things that conflict with our Christian faith and tempt us to compromise with our Christian faith. This is especially true as our own culture moves further and further away from Christian spirituality and Christian morality. For example, a couple of weeks ago, I was thumbing through some of the old bulletins from the Highland Church of Christ. And I came upon some ones from 1964. And I came across this article in one from 1964. It said, do you Highlanders, do you want to help defeat this issue? Then write, phone, or telegraph. Dust off that telegraph machine. All five of the city commissioners attend the city commission meetings and express your opposition to this matter when it is presented. Pray daily and earnestly alone and in groups that this matter be defeated now and for all time. We as Christians realize that this is one of the greatest blights upon our city and community. So what was this great blight that we were fighting in 1964 in this city? Well, it was that the city commission was about to allow a few more liquor stores to open up within the city limits. That was the great blight in 1964. Now, I'm not trying to minimize that. That's an important issue. But compare that to what we face today. Things have changed a lot, haven't they? And if you really want to live out the teachings of Jesus today, it's hard. There are so many things that can against our faith, that conflict with our faith, that tempt us to compromise our faith today. And that's why John wants us to think about heaven and that throne in heaven, because he knows that we're dealing with all of these other thrones down here on earth. And ultimately what this vision in chapter 4 and 5 is all about is this. John is helping us see that everything finds its proper place in relationship to that throne. That it's, it's only when we have a proper relationship to that throne that our life here is at its very best. So let's read on here in chapter 4. And he who sat there on that throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, if it were, a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front of behind the first living creature like a lion the second living creature like an ox the third living creature with the face of a man the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight all of these these details here so many details that we don't have time to dig into the the, the stones mentioned symbolizing the beauty the glory the majesty of God 
There's a rainbow around the throne hearkening back to the first rainbow in Genesis symbolizing the mercy of God. The sea of glass in chapter 13, verse 1. The beast comes out of the sea, so the sea symbolizes evil. But here the sea is calm and clear. God has overcome all evil. The 24 elders probably representing the 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament, the 12 apostles in the New Testament. So the 24 elders representing all of the people of God. The four living creatures probably representing all of creation, all non-human creation. And so what John sees here is all of creation, all human creation, all non-human creation centered around the throne of God. All of creation, all human creation, all non-human creation, centered around the throne of God. And that picture right there is life at its best. That picture right there is the life that we are intended to live. Not, not this life where all of these pressures are going on and all these competing allegiances are going on. This picture right here, where all of creation is centered on the one throne of God. And what's happening in heaven, in Revelation, is always intended to influence what's happening on earth. Every time we see something happening up here in Revelation, it's supposed to influence what's happening down here. What we see in heaven is supposed to be happening on earth. What this vision is saying is that our life is best when it's centered on God. When we no longer give allegiance to any other throne or power calling for our allegiance or loyalty, but instead our whole life is centered on the one throne of the one God in heaven. And so the question then becomes, well, how do you do that? And the rest of the vision in chapter 4 and 5 answers that in kind of a strange way, because John's answer to that question is sing. Sing. The rest of the text is just singing. Five songs make up the rest of the text. The way that all of creation centers on the one throne in heaven is through singing. Look at these five songs in the rest of the text. There's a song that is sung to God by the four living creatures in chapter 4, verse 8. There's a song sung again to God by now the chorus grows to 24 elders from the four living creatures to the 24 elders. And now the song moves from just to God, now to the Lamb. And now the choir grows from just the four to the 24 to the 28, the four living creatures to the 24 elders. There is now a fourth song sung to the Lamb, and the choir grows again from the four to the 24 to the 28. Now the countless angels aren't now singing. And now the fifth song is to God and the Lamb, and now the choir is completely countless as every creature everywhere and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all this in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And there's so much going on in these songs, so much theology we don't have time to address this morning. 
Eugene Peterson kind of cuts through all of that with this one line here. He says, we worship or we sing, he's talking about these five songs, so that we live in response to and from this center, the living God. That's what's happening in this vision. All these creatures are singing so that they can live in response to and from that center. In other words, singing, worship, is how we center our lives upon the one throne in heaven. Singing becomes an act of resistance against all of the thrones on earth. Singing becomes a protest against all of the thrones on earth. Singing is a revolutionary act. Estonia is a small country in Eastern Europe. It gained independence in 1918, but then was taken over by the Soviets in 1940, by Nazi Germany in 1941, and again by the Soviets in 1944, under whose control it remained. During those tumultuous times, Estonia carried on its massive singing festivals. These singing festivals dated back to 1869. They were held every five years, and they involved choirs of 20,000 to 30,000 singers. 100,000 Estonians would usually attend these singing festivals. Singing was such a part of that part of Eastern Europe that one of the poets once wrote that a shield of songs could repel spears. In 1947 at the singing festival, just a few years after the Soviets had regained control over Estonia, the massive choir sang Soviet propaganda songs as was required. But that year they also sang a new song that became a protest song. An Estonian poem called My Country, My Love was set to new music and sung by the choir. And it became an instant hit, a kind of unofficial national anthem. And it was picked up in subsequent singing festivals in Estonia. And it became one of the ways in which the Estonians voiced their dissent against the Soviet Union in a peaceful way. Here's a clip of how that song sounds at one of their singing festivals.
At the singing festival in 1969, the choir took up that song. By that time, the Soviets had understood that it was a protest song, and so they called for the choir to stop singing. But the crowd of 100,000 took it up in their stead. The Soviets called for the military band to start playing to drown out the crowd, but of course, a band couldn't drown out 100,000 voices. And so the singing festivals became the way in which the revolution took root in Estonia and was carried on. In June of 1988, 100,000 Estonians gathered for five nights of singing. Many of the songs were protest songs. In, 19, in September of 1988, 300,000 Estonians gathered. One quarter of the population of the entire country gathered for three nights of singing. And this eventually culminated, culminated in 1991 with the liberation of the country from the Soviet Union. The entire event became known as the Singing Revolution. And in essence, that's what this vision in Revelation 4 and 5 is. It is a singing revolution. It is a reminder to us that singing is not just something that we do on Sundays or in a car or in a shower. Singing is a revolutionary act. It is how we voice our dissent against anything that conflicts with our Christian faith, that tempts us to compromise our Christian faith. It is how we stay centered on that one throne of God in heaven. Singing is how we stay centered on the right throne and how we resist all the wrong thrones. The Broadway musical Les Miserables is set up against the backdrop of the French Revolution. That musical begins and ends with the song, Do You Hear the People Sing? The words go like this, Do You Hear the People Sing? Singing a song of angry men. It is the music of a people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums, there is a life about to start when tomorrow comes. And in the play, the revolution itself begins and ends with the sound of people singing. That's what John sees and hears in heaven, the sound of all creation singing. It is the sound of revolution. Singing is the sound of revolution. It is how we voice our dissent against anything that detours us from our faith in Jesus, in the Spirit, and in God. And so this week, I want to encourage you to sing. I want to encourage you to find one song that keeps your heart and mind centered upon God. And I want to encourage you to sing that song all day, every day. Let it play in your mind and in your heart. Let it be the, the background to your day all day, every day. And when discouragement comes, sing it. When despair comes, sing it. When something's conflicting your faith, sing it. When something is about to compromise your faith, sing it. Let it be the way that you voice your dissent against those things. Let it be the way that you resist those things. Let it be the way that you center yourself on the one throne in heaven. Let's stand and sing together.
Salvation belongs to our God, who sits upon 